You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome to another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. Today, we're here with our newest Seven Mile employee, Mark Landry. Mark will be the newest managing director and heading up our consumer products and retail practice, which we are very excited to start kicking off. So Mark, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with introducing yourself, giving us a little bit more of your background and how you ended up at 7MA. I would love to. Good afternoon. Well, I, I started out in Canada where I went to school and finished my professional accountancy and worked for a number of companies. And then I joined Unilever, where I worked for their then called detergents business, which was uh, called Lever Brothers. And uh, during that time, they made a major acquisition uh, around the world called Cheeseboro Ponds. And I went over as uh, the, the chief financial officer of that new company, merged that together. And uh, we were one of the most successful, it seemed, around the world in doing that. And so I was asked to go over to Europe, to the uh, headquarters of Unilever, where I was happy to do that, move my family and went for a new experience over to England. And uh, I was the CFO of their European personal products business, which uh, comprised of 16 countries. Very quickly when I was there, if, if I could just date myself a little bit, that was in the era where NAFTA was being contemplated. And so the whole notion of freedom of trade and big trading units was uh, was already in my repertoire. So when I arrived in Europe and I could see we were still managing country by country where I could see the European Union ahead of us. So anyway, to make a very long story short, I was part of making a strategy, developing a strategy where we would unify Unilever as a trading unit called Unilever Europe, which would hopefully defend our very strong positions and thwart any onslaught of new competitors who were going to come in on the back of the new opportunities presented by the European Union. And so I was there for about six years, and then I went over to the U.S. and ran Cheeseboro Ponds, uh, which was the business I spoke of earlier that was acquired during my tenure in Canada. And after about 20 years, I uh, had to make some decisions and I became quite enamored with uh, what I would call the value consumer. And I learned an awful lot about that through the acquisition of Lean Curtis, which was a uh, global business uh, headquartered out of Chicago and had a wonderful brand called Suave. And Suave was a, and you may remember it was, can you tell the difference was the tagline. And it didn't fit well in Unilever, even though the hair business was important to us, largely because Unilever and Procter and the Colgates of the world had built businesses around premium priced, dis differentiating technology, etc. And I could see that this brand was beautiful and it was working with the consumers. So I uh, went to Unilever and talked to them about how to exit these kind of value brands uh, would help them focus on their larger brands, positioning well for what was then an emerging regionalization of the world, whether it be Latin America, North America, 
Europe and Asia, and certainly, uh, as I could see it, a, a beginning of uh, globalization, which we see now taking full effect. So after a long and drawn out uh, negotiation with them, I actually left Unilever and did a leverage buyout and created a mid-market value-based business called Phoenix Brands. And Phoenix Brands was unique in, in a number of ways. Number one, it was probably the first and the only one I know of to date. It was 100% outsourced. So we managed a business at one time, which was $500 million with 24 people. Uh, and it was a very unique business. And I did that for about 11 years and decided to leave that business. And I moved to Florida, where I find myself now. And after a few months of trying to uh, learn how to play bad golf, I met up with some partners in a wonderful technology firm uh, and joined them and helped them realize their vision. So I worked there for three years as their CEO. And during that time, when we decided it was time for them to merge their business into a larger platform, uh, I worked for six months with Seven Mile. We had a wonderful relationship. Our, our philosophies melded wonderfully. They were certainly a juggernaut in the technology space and had built a capability which would lend itself to scaling into other verticals, which it had already begun to do, to do in the manufacturing engineering space and also in healthcare. So we talked about the role consumer products could play and what we, we see as being the inevitable nexus between consumer products and technology. And that brings us to today. Great. And we are certainly glad to have you and very excited to kind of launch this new industry vertical for ourselves. So speaking of the kind of CPG consumer products industry, obviously there've been a lot of changes over the past 20, 30 years in that industry. But we were kind of speaking the other day about how from a business standpoint, a lot of those kind of trends are really still very relevant today in terms of um, making acquisition, divestiture decisions. Would you mind kind of going over some of those examples that really play a role in terms of companies' acquisition strategies? Yeah, I'd love to. And you know what I'm going to do is I'd like to use some examples of the transactions that I led and participated in with Unilever because there, what happened, what was happening as the world was changing and, and that change is still upon us today. So, you know, we worked hard on a global uh, acquisition in the prestige space. We acquired the fragrance business of Calvin Klein, which is a global, very successful business. And we acquired the global uh, Elizabeth Arden business, which was a full beauty business that had fragrances, that color cosmetics, skin products, etc. That was part of the trend that said you need to be in different channels. So the consumer was stratifying between prestige, mid-tier, and value. And you need to be global. Your brands needed to be global. These two businesses were by definition global. By definition, their brands were the same everywhere you went. And they were in a channel which was new to us that we needed to learn. And, and we, we had dubbed it class to mass. What could we learn in the prestige department store, duty-free environment that we could blend and cascade into our mass businesses? What was that learning? So there's one driving theme. Globalization gives rise to the need to change your M&A practice. 
as I mentioned earlier, uh, regionalization is much more mature in today's world, but still a driver within the MAA. So as you see businesses that are taking a geographic footprint and saying we need to be, if you're in Argentina, you need to be in Chile. If you're in the United States, you look to Canada, you look to Mexico. If you're in Europe, you continue to build upon that European foundation. You see it all over Asia. So regionalization and globalization continue to be drivers of, of acquisition, not only for footprint, however. With this broader expanse, you're seeing margin pressures. You're seeing introduction into market of different brands. So the CEOs are looking at multiple reasons for M&A, part of which is filling in empty spaces, white spaces in geography, part of which is gaining scale to offset the margin pressure associated with globally sized business competing against you. And part of it is looking at new capabilities, which are being born in different parts of the world. That is upon that has been with us for 20 years and will continue with us for the foreseeable future. If you now add to that, that with all of that activity, you know, whether you're expanding the geographic footprint, whether you're improving margin, whether you're driving for new technology, it still feels a little bit like you're doing the same thing, just different, just bigger. And now let's put on the last 20 years, the emergence of the digital marketplace and how that has introduced new competition, new ways of getting to the consumer, new ways of presenting your product to the consumer in a manner that is much more customized than you would see through mass merchant outlets like Target or Walmart or Shoppers or CDS. So I see in my mind that CEO now has to expand his thinking around how do I learn that new way? How do I buy these companies, which you're seeing every day, you're seeing Unilever buy Men's Shave Club, or they're buying a big data technology firm, or you, 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 you could see in the food business, General Mills buying up local uh, regional yogurt players, or you're seeing craft buying organic companies. The real key there is you're buying self-sustaining, well-established businesses, but the bigger strategic play is that you're hoping that you can learn from their brilliance and their and their forward-looking um, vision into the consumer and into this technology ecosystem. You're hoping to learn from that and imbue it into your legacy company and learn from that so you can make one plus one equal three to five as opposed to just two. Yeah, I think we can all agree that technology is going to play a big role, has in the past and will continue into the future. But having worked in the consumer industry and then moving more into the emerging tech industry with Aero Digital, are there any specific digital or tech trends that you see will or that you think will become more prominent in some of these legacy companies? I do. I think that the the amount of in my day many years ago the dream was if you could build a business to market to a market of one this whole technology revolution has made that possible the key is now it is possible so we can 
the, the available data, the ability to interrogate that data, the available technology to be able to customize is there. Building the business models to efficiently and effectively now execute and reap the rewards from that is the challenge that we're all facing now. It's interesting when you look at technology, Ariel, the, the technology industry, I think, doesn't do itself any favors when it, it kind of moves quickly. So for many years, you've been hearing about big data, you've been hearing about AI, you've been hearing about cloud computing and blockchain, and it feels like it's done. But when you really look at the incidence of penetration into the brick and mortar companies, I would argue that it has scarcely began. So it is all ahead of us. And the reason it's ahead of us is I think it's a big leap to understand and how to commercialize that inside the walls of those brick and mortar company or what I call legacy companies. It's almost as if the CEOs have to reckon with the fact that they're, they're facing extinction, not tomorrow, uh, but if they don't change, the world will change around it. And so embracing that and being able to do so in a way that doesn't interrupt the existing business, but builds upon it and infiltrates itself into the business to make it that much more robust and relevant for the future. That's the challenge and that's a job still to be done. And that is going to be in my, in my view, it's going to feature prominently in the M&A world as we look forward. And I know you mentioned um, Dollar Shave Club is a good example of how some of these legacy brands are starting to embrace new tech, new technologies, uh, new ways of marketing to one, delivering to one, that kind of thing. Are there any other examples um, that have come up recently or in the past few years where you've seen these legacy brands start to acquire different pieces of technology in order to kind of build a more robust capability quicker? Well, you know, I don't have the names at the top of my mind, but if you look in the, the whole natural space, I would bet you that the preponderance of food activity last year was in the big companies buying these smaller, more natural, organic food companies, which have started to be able to find a consumer base in the purely digital world. I think you'll find the whole e-commerce space where companies are starting to get to audiences of millions and millions and creating, I'm trying to, I'm fighting for the name of the sock company. Is it Bombas, one of them? Um, where, you know, the, each pair of socks um, that they sell, they give away another pair of socks for a charitable. That, that is something that the whole fashion industry is, is, is paying attention to. Now, I will tell you, I don't think in all these examples, the Shave Club, I don't believe it has a better razor or a different razor. I don't think it's skin skin uh, balms uh, or shampoos are different. But the way in which they present it to the consumer, the way they're able to reckon with the consumer's specific needs is very different. Uh, and, and that is the model. If you look at what price you never paid to be in that market with Men's Shave Club, there is no math, I'm sure, that could get you to the price that was paid. But what there was, was a vision uh, inside of Euler saying that their knowledge of male grooming and their knowledge of the use of digital technology and its landscape 
to create a business model is something we have to know for the future. The value of which I'm sure is still being contemplated, but it's no longer an if, it's a need and they need to do that. It's the same for the big food producers. They need to know how and, and what is driving these smaller brands that tend to be inside of cities and locals. How do you get a hold of that? And how do you use your scale and their ingenuity to be able to scale that faster and better without hurting the imagination and the energy that built it in the first place? And that's what's being grappled with today. So I have to ask, kind of in this unknown time and everyone's wondering what the economy is going to do over the next 12 to 24 months, with those pending changes kind of sitting out there, how do you think that's going to potentially impact the M&A space in the either consumer or technology realm? Well, I, I think that, you know, there's if you ask six people, you'll get eight different opinions on that one. For but, sure. But, <laughs> uh, but, but I, here's, here's, here's my thesis. I think that the, the underlying uh, uh, energy in our economy right now is undeniable. I think the amount of money on the sidelines, whether it be on the balance sheets of big businesses or in the hands of huge funds, is probably at historical levels. So save and accept some, some difficult um, geopolitical activity that is hard to reckon with. Well, even in the face, I'm saying this, even in the face of uncertain global trading, even in the face of uncertainty within the European bloc with Brexit or the um, terrible political environment in Venezuela, even with those knowns, I do not believe that the, that the wherewithal to engineer M&A and the need for the companies, not only the big ones, but the middle-sized companies, to engineer M&A to get to their strategy, I think it will be determined through all of that. So I think that you'll see 19 as being as strong as 18 and 20 is a hard one for me to predict, but that money on the sidelines and money on balance sheets is not going away. Agreed. That kind of seems to be the trend that for at least the meantime, uh, we are consistently hearing from people. So I will kind of shift the conversation just a little bit away from more of the industry specifics and more to just a little bit of uh, your career. So I think we all have those moments in short careers or long careers like yourself where it kind of hit as a really a moment, historic moment in a career. Um, and you've had some pretty big milestones that you went over earlier, but what would you say was really one or two of the most memorable moments that you came across either earlier in your career, or maybe some of those pinnacle moments have been a little bit more recently with these new endeavors that are a little bit outside of your wheelhouse and exciting new territory to learn about. You know, I would say my, my most recent one, not only because recency tends to always come up to the top. Uh, when I joined Aero Digital, I'm going to just make it a little story because, you, you know, I was actually selling my house to one of the partners. <laughs> And I asked him what he did, and he was so, so full of energy and excitement about what him and his partner had built. And at the end of our conversation, he said, you know, you asked me a lot of questions that I didn't have the answers to. Should I? 
And I said, you know, it seems to me you guys are doing really well. Um, so I think at some point you need those answers, but right now you're going pretty good. And he said, you know, we've always wanted an advisory director. Do you think you would do that for us? And I said, you know, I have a little bit of difficulty turning my phone on in the morning, so I'm not sure I'm the guy you want helping you grow your technology business. And he said, well, I'm not sure. So anyway, I met the partners and they didn't want an advisory director. They wanted a CEO and they wanted me. So I said to them, look, um, I am honestly unsure as to whether I can add the value that you feel you need. So I'll come in for three months and I will have single veto right. <laughs> if I do not feel I can create value with and for you, I am leaving and it will be my decision and no discussion. Well, three years later, we tripled the business and we, uh, we went through a momentous uh, decision of, of merging with a, a wonderful company, Soft Vision, for all the right reasons. It was value, it was cultural fit, it was trajectory for the visions of the partners. It was a, a real wonderful experience. And for me, um, it was two things. One, uh, having left Unilever and created a mid-sized business, but a mid-sized business was still hundreds of millions of dollars. To be able to go into a business that was much smaller and different, and to be able to learn that all of those things that you learned over the years, uh, as long as you're prepared to you know, roll up your sleeve and learn the industry are, are applicable. And at the end of the day, it's about working with very smart people who have a very keen insight with huge energy and helping them get to where they want to get to. And for me, that was one of the most satisfying experiences I ever had. Now, in addition, having a chance to dig into the technology world, I found myself often saying, if I only knew then what I know now, because as I was growing Unilever and growing Phoenix brands, the amount of technology that I could have availed myself of, if I had known, that could have changed remarkably the success of both businesses, was it, it was sad to learn late, I can tell you that much. So I would have to say to you, amongst many, many pinnacles in my career, that one was the most gratifying for me as the end of uh, the career on the side of CEO and managing a business. So looking back when knowing now what you didn't know then, what would you say is the most singular piece of technology that you would look and tell yourself back in the day, hey, you need to give this a little bit more attention? Well, I think the whole area of big data, the you see, I, as a CEO within Unilever, we never launched a brand that didn't show up on every metric as being a success, but we launched more failures than successes. <laughs> and I, I really believed at the end that we were influencing our testing and our interrogation of data and adjusting the insights to our predisposed view of what was right. I think that what I would have done immediately is invested in big data. I think it was premature for artificial intelligence, but I would have been asking these scientists to look at my data unencumbered by the past and what our predilections were. And I would have been asking them to what, got, what insights were they seeing and to challenge us based on a very different and unusual way of looking at data. 
And I'm certain it would have given us all sorts of angst and it would have gave, given rise to all sorts of argument, but it would have forced us to look at our consumer and look at our way of garnering insights from huge pieces of data that would have helped us, I believe, get to where these businesses are today that we're buying for big multiples. So right, wrong, or indifferent, I think a lot of people view the consumer industry and the brick and mortar industry as almost a, we've been saying legacy, but I think a lot of people kind of see it as a as a sector that's on the downhill. Um, it's definitely not the same sexy industry that it once was back in the Mad Men era. So for, you know, new grads coming out of school and trying to decide which direction they want to step in, for those that would potentially be interested in exploring consumer products where a lot of people might be advising them differently, what advice would you have for them? I would say have energy and vision. I would still want to go to the bigger, let's call them brick and mortars, because the amount of education and the amount of training and the processes that they will be engaged in are uh, irreplaceable in my view. However, I would never lose their enthusiasm and their knowledge of what the art of the possible is for using that discipline and availing themselves of the enormous opportunities that the digital world offers. And I would say to them, have confidence that they're ability to learn and therefore persuade and strategically influence the companies they're going into is something that they should have uh, as their challenge. You know, for all of us, we went in, we changed. That brick and mortar looked different when we left <laughs> than it is now. So it was always the people that became CEOs of brick and mortar businesses didn't come in and march in the same spot. They changed the business and they changed it with the tools they had at the same time at that time. And they changed it with a lot of bravery and a lot of powerful strategic influencing. I would say to these uh, these young graduates, you have that same power and you have the same need and you'll differentiate yourself in the same way people did before. But it will be embracing this new capability that the digital world gives us and influencing the massive big brick and mortar world that you joined. That challenge still exists. So speaking of embracing a new challenge, what are you most looking forward to in terms of joining our team and starting off on this new seven mile adventure? Well, you know, I, again, I, um, I have to be very humble. While I've done countless acquisitions and divestitures and licensing agreements globally and, and regionally and, and domestically, I've never done it from the consulting side and I'm sure it's different. So I am looking forward to learning that. But mostly what I'm looking forward to is I am absolutely positive, having joined Seven Mile, that we share the same values. And that is our ability to deeply understand and empathize with that founder and that entrepreneur who's put their heart and soul into a business and are now at the time where they have to make a decision on how do they go forward differently. And I'm looking forward to being able to work with Seven Mile and, and our clients to share with them the experiences I have had now as the one who has bought and sold his own business and bought and sold a business I grew with partners and all of them pretty recent. So I really believe that 
I, I can add something different and it's consistent with the beliefs of seven mile. And it's, it's very much in my heart. So that's what I'm looking forward to. A lot of learning to up front, but I think when it comes down to it, uh, I'll be able to dig very deeply into a well of experience and, and relevant experience as I talk to all those clients. Well, we'll have to do another podcast this time next year and have the conversation of what you wish you would have known, because it's well, always fun to, to look back on those and say, oh man, if only. Um, yeah. Well, I'm hoping the lion's share of that podcast will be telling you about all the entrepreneurs and founders that I was able to help get to that next leg of their journey. Well, I certainly hope that too. Um, <laughs> So before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to leave listeners with or any last piece? I would just say that whether you're in a brick and mortar business or a digital space, that if you're in the digital space, it's ever changing. So we always have to learn if you're in the brick and mortar space, you have to learn how to embrace the digital and whether you're near some type of an event, a merger or recapitalization or it's in the distance it never hurts to talk to folks like myself or seven mile and we will always be a good listener we will also share our experience and we'll also always help you plan to position your company the best for whatever timing suits you and for whatever options you choose to take and I will add to that, if you need any additional information from our team, um, it's always very easy to get in touch with us at 7mileadvisors.com. And we will have another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA coming out in two weeks. Um, we publish every other Monday. So our next episode after this one will be up in two weeks. Uh, we look forward to having you back then. Mark, thank you for your time. Thank you. Everybody have a good one. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7-M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 